0: Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien, and now Nicole Braddock-Bromley.
1: Mary, it's so good to be back. I know we took a little bit of a pause here. That was kind of crazy, but summer's busy.
0: It is, but we're here and we're ready.
1: We are here and we are ready. So glad to be back. We have a really, really great guest with us. Jane Epstein is with us. Welcome, Jane. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Jane is a survivor. She's an advocate for survivors, specifically on the topic that we're going to unpack today, which I'm really excited to talk about because it's something that we don't talk enough about, to be frank with you. And that's sibling sexual abuse. And Jane, you work with Complicated Courage, an organization called Complicated Courage. You're also the co-founder of both incestaware.org and fivewaves.org, which is an international advocacy group that offers things like info, support, and guidance specifically to survivors of sibling sexual abuse. So you've been doing this for how long, Jane? Correct. Um, I
2: have been very loud and very vocal for about five years. And I feel like things are finally starting to take momentum and and take (laughs) hold.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I know that feeling. I've been speaking out for 20 years now about child sexual abuse. And, you know, I know as you probably are starting to understand when you step off of a stage or you finish a media interview, you are bombarded with other survivors who are feeling like they finally aren't alone and they've heard someone tell a story similar to theirs that they thought no one else had. And that has been my story for the past 20 years, as I've been speaking about being sexually abused by my stepfather as a kid and never feeling like I could talk about it and feeling like no one who had a life like me was going through something like this. And, you know, then I meet somebody like Mary who, you know, she is a very successful woman and a real badass in the world. And here she's got a story like mine too. It's just so awesome to meet these people, but at the same time to realize how many people have been silent. Um, But I wanted to ask you, Jane, as I've gotten to know you through an amazing TEDx talk that you did and just through some of your blogging and things, you used a term that has stuck with me and you said it's murky. (laughs) And that really stuck with me because it's so true. I have listened to countless stories of survivors and. When I have heard a story about sibling sexual abuse, especially years and years ago when I first started in my early 20s talking about this from stages, I thought I need to learn more because it is murky. You are right. And I was like looking stuff up probably before Google was even there. Like, you know, I was on yahoo.com looking up sibling sexual abuse. There wasn't information. Like no one was talking about this. I think it's because we didn't know how. And it was like, is this curiosity? Is this normal? Is this sexual abuse? And like, what do we do with it? So I would love to, for you to just share, you know, your thoughts on that. Um, Just that, you know, it is murky and why, and what do we do to clean it up?
2: Wow. That's a very loaded question. And I think it's the (laughs) top question that I get asked Yeah. I'm sure. I do want to start out by saying that I think that there are some situations where it's not murky. Mm -hmm. If a sibling rapes his sister, it's not murky. That is trauma. That is abuse. Great. Yeah. But there are so many situations where it is murky and you are generally dealing with a child on another child Mm -hmm. that in itself creates so much confusion. And often the survivor and the person who caused harm a lot of times don't understand that harm is being caused until they become adults and they can reflect back as an adult and say, Oh, that was wrong. So I'll have survivors kind of, it takes a while to unpack it and finally realize, wait, that was a curiosity. That's what happened to me. I had to finally unpack it and be like, wait a second, that really messed me up. And then I've had those who have caused harm reach out to me and they say, I feel awful. I feel terrible because they're approaching it from an adult's perspective because children who harm other children aren't behaving from an adult's perspective. Mm -hmm. When an adult harms a child, your stepfather, we know he's a bad person. We know it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think that children who harm other children on some level, they know that it's wrong. Yeah. but they may not understand the damage that is occurring. Yeah. So honestly, the more I, I used to stick with what the experts would say, mm-hmm. and I would repeat what the experts would say, you know, if it happens one time, it's probably not abuse. But then I had survivors reach out to me and say, no, it happened to me one time and it was incredibly traumatizing. Sure. And the more I started speaking out and and talking about what the experts were saying and hearing from survivors, I thought, wow, the experts don't even know. The experts can't even agree.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, so I always kind of go into, we have to go into the prevention mode. I can't change the past, Mm -hmm. but if you walk in on something, children are engaged in something, instead of approaching it like, Oh, kids are curious. Why not approach it as, okay, this could be potentially be harmful. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I've heard stories of survivors who are being harmed and a parent walks in and because no one's screaming or crying, a parent assumes that, oh, both kids are being curious. Mm-hmm. It's it, see, it's still very, very murky. Yeah. Um, that's why I tell people to approach it as, look at it as it could be potentially harmful and let's talk about it. If we're not talking about it, it mm-hmm. stays murky. It stays hidden.
0: It yeah. stays in
2: the dark. It's, it's not that hard. We just have to bring it out and talk about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think, and that's what, so often I think parents are afraid to even broach the subject, right? Because it feels complicated. It Um, is complicated. And they also think it doesn't apply to them, you know, because I want to get
2: into schools. I am going to start educating parents, but even parents, once they've discovered it, they say, oh, now I see it. But if you would try to come into my school, I would have thought, no, I don't need to hear that. I don't need, that's not happening in my family. It's hard for a parent. I can't, I talk to parents and it's
1: devastating. I can't, I, I, I can't imagine. Hmm. I was just wondering and curious, is there a definition of sibling sexual abuse that you find most helpful? You know, when I was growing up or when I was kind of healing in my initial stages of my healing journey, um, understanding that sexual abuse included words, looks, you know, um, showing of pornographic films, that kind of thing. That helped me because I grew up thinking that sexual abuse could only be touching. And so knowing that there was a spectrum of ways that a child could be sexually abused was helpful to me. So I wondered if there was any way, you know, just that specific to siblings, if it was helpful, if there was any definition that was helpful for you to be able to identify it, you know, so many times survivors aren't able to identify themselves as a survivor. We've we interviewed um, one of our friends. Um, we did like a mini series a few months ago, actually in April for Sexual Abuse Awareness Month. And, you know, I think for her, she wasn't able to identify herself as a survivor of sibling sexual abuse because her brother was younger than her, <laughs> but he sexually abused her for years and years but she thought it can't be that because her definition that what she had grown up thinking was that it had to be someone that was older, but he still had power in her patriarchal family. So she had to define it differently to find herself in that story, in that label. So that find healing. Nicole, thank you
2: for sharing that story because that's another thing is that the experts will say an age gap of three years or more is generally abuse, abuse of power, abuse of knowledge. But you hear from these survivors and they say, but I was sexually abused by a younger sibling or someone that was my same age. So I feel like the guidelines of the expert, the experts are trying to figure it out as well. And they're also trying to figure it out based on not many people coming forward. They're Mm -hmm. only working with a very small group of people who are willing to come forward and talk about it in fairness to the experts.
1: Yeah.
2: And you are correct. You know, showing a pornographic images and, and, or, or, uh, taking pictures of another child undressing or watching another child undress there. I hear these stories all the time and yeah. they are abusive and they are
1: traumatic. Um, which so truly the definition is simply the definition of sexual abuse. And then you add in that it's a sibling and it doesn't matter the age, the gender, none of it. It's just exactly. it's sexual abuse by someone who is a sibling to me. Exactly, exactly. And
2: yeah. And I know that a lot of, a lot of sexual abuse occurs because the people who caused harm reach out to me and they will tell me I was exposed to pornography or I was sexually abused. Then I did it to another child. And before another survivor assumes that I'm saying that makes it okay. No, that simply explains why, but that does not make it okay. There are certain, there are definitely consequences to the actions, which I firmly believe in educating our children, you know, it doesn't, it's not just Stranger Dangerous, not just the uncle. It also includes your cousins, Mm -hmm. siblings, and your step-siblings.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that definitely is not talked about enough. You know, we're just beginning to lead a different culture in a generation where we can talk about things like sexual abuse, exploitation, and rape, but to also add into that, and drive home the point, Mary, you just said this the other day. Actually, I think this morning, you know, that you were at a basketball camp with your kid and, you know, people were thinking.
0: Yeah. I was just getting ready to bring that story up. Jane, just this morning, <laughs> I had my seven-year-old at a basketball clinic out of 50 kids. And I'm not judging any parent. I just want to first say that I'm different. And I know that, <laughs> <Is> that <laughs> parents, I was one of the two moms who stayed the entire basketball clinic. Everyone's up. It's their own decision. However, another mom came up to me who stuck around a little bit longer. And she said, I don't know these people. I at least want to drop off and stay for a little bit and see what's going on. And I said, absolutely. And I said, I'm next level psychotic. I will stay the whole four hours, not just the first 20 minutes. But then we very briefly talked about, she brought up Larry Nasser and that whole scenario when you think it's someone you can trust. And I told her, and it's not just the strangers you have to worry about, it's the people you actually know, because statistically that are, that's the large group of the predators. Um, so she just kind of looked at me nodding her head and listening, and she has three kids, another baby on the way. So just those little nuggets of truth and wisdom that we can instill in other people that I didn't know a lot. Um, that I had to learn from Nicole because she has three older boys. Um, so it's like, we have to be in this together with one another um, and opening each other's eyes. So, and you never know when those conversations are going to pop up, whether it's basketball clinic, Kroger church, whatever it may be. Um, I think like you said, Nicole, we're raising a new generation and it's time to have some really hard conversations. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And it's not just with the kids. It's with our friend it's with other parents that we are in contact with it's like you said people at church like whatever it is it's like Jane you were saying so many people still think that it's somebody outside of our circle when we know statistically it's generally those who are closest to us and I think especially in the world of so many conspiracy theories and like it's you know, the fear that's instilled from the top down, even politically. And even then, you know, to be quite frank, in the conservative evangelical world, there's so much fear about them versus us. And I'm here to say, like, no, it's all of us. Like, you got to watch everywhere you're at. Because like you said, statistically, and you said this in your TED Talk, I mean, you nailed a bunch of stats in that. that were really powerful, the way you delivered that, Jane. Um, yeah. So I think you're right that we have to talk about it even we have to homes. talk about it. I, because so many
2: survivors, and like you said, in the beginning, I've had survivors reach out to me and they will say, I'm 50 years old. I've spent 40 years thinking I'm the only one thinking I'm a freak. Mm-hmm. And that's the worst thing. Cause as Nicole, I think that you advocate sharing stories. Yes. We are all connected by our stories. We don't have mm-hmm. the same story, but if I can see me in your story, that can lessen the shame. I won't feel alone. And every time someone shares their story, you lose a layer of shame and yeah. you help someone else and that helps you. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to go on a TEDx stage and scream <laughs> their story out like me, but even yeah. starting with like your writing program or your podcast, I believe, I believe in the power of stories.
1: Yeah. that being said, Jane, I mean, I really want all of our listeners to look up your TED talk and just take that all in. It's about 13 minutes. It's beautiful. But would you be willing to unpack a little bit, give us a little bit of your story? I mean, there's so many survivors that listen that have a similar story. And I think it's really helpful just to know that they're not alone, even like the little details of, you know, kind of your journey um, from when you were younger. Yeah. Thank you.
2: I will share one more thing about the TEDx. I'd like to share this because when I was applying for TEDx, a couple of the event organizers passed on my topic
1: Mm.
2: and I'm used to being told no, (laughs) I've tried to get in the media. No, um, sibling sexual abuse does not bring ratings up. (laughs) It makes people change the channel. So that was the first thing I was told no a lot. So I actually kind of tried to change my message and I tried to sneak sibling sexual abuse in through the back door and the event organizers that ended up selecting me, they sat down and they said, look, we, we kind of just want you to just talk about sibling sexual abuse. We can't find any other talks out there on this. And the event organizer said, I don't mean any disrespect, but I love your topic. So He granted me permission to go on that stage and talk about sibling sexual abuse, something that a lot of the other event organizers would not take on. So I'm incredibly Mm. grateful for that opportunity. And it is one of the first talks out there about sibling sexual abuse. So I believe that's a start to opening the door. Yeah. Whoever else comes in after me.
1: So Mm -hmm. that's about the
2: TEDx. My story, you never would have thought I would be on a TEDx stage.
1: Mm. Uh, (laughs) You were on some stages.
2: I was on some stages. Yes. (laughs) This was a very different stage. (laughs) I kind of described my story. And I think a lot of survivors can relate to this is that my story was like a Rubik's cube. It was a puzzle to me. And I felt like my life started out of order, but I didn't understand that until I was 45 and started unpacking it. Okay. When I was 45, I found myself very depressed and wanting to die. I, I describe it as not being suicidal, but wanting to die, hoping for a a cancer diagnosis or Mm -hmm. getting in a car crash. I had two small children and a husband, and we live outside the Bay area. I'm a stay at home mom. looks like I have a perfect life on the Mm -hmm. outside, but inside, I just wanted to die. And that sense of dread would rise in my chest daily. And I had this sense that my life was going to be cut short. And I Googled that and it said, because You might have those feelings if you're afraid of death. And I was thinking, well, I'm not afraid of death. I've been with death and I'll go into that story. So I just kept feeling we'd been in marriage counseling for five years, my husband and I. And I thought I've tried to fix him. I've tried to fix me. Nothing is working. So maybe there is something inside of me that needs work. I made a conscious decision to quit drinking. And I started writing my story down from start to finish. And that is where I was able to unpack the answers because I'd spent years thinking, yeah, I was sexually abused by a brother, but it was just two kids messing around. Had, that could not have messed me up. But as I started writing the story down, I realized, wait, I think it changed the trajectory of my life. My brother started sexually abusing me when I was age six on and off until age 12. And through that process, I was confused. I didn't understand what was happening, but at some point my body responded to his touch. And my father was very busy out in the world as a school psychologist, saving everybody else's children, saving everybody else's family. Wasn't sure what to do with me. Didn't want a third child. Certainly didn't want a third born to be a girl. Mm. That left gaps for my brother to step in and made me vulnerable to his touch and his attention. My brother never threatened me, never physically harmed me. It was just, it was sexual abuse, which changed my brain, changed the way I thought about myself. So I became angry and rebellious and boy, crazy looking back, I'm thinking, okay, the anger was that, that was the shame. That was the control being taken away from me. But I, you know, you, I think the two of you understand, we didn't have the words. We didn't have the capability. We didn't know what was going on. I just knew I was a raging angry person and very boy crazy, boy crazy to the point that I dropped out of business school, barely graduated high school, first of all, because I was busy doing drugs, drinking, chasing boys. And so I dropped out of business college and I became a stripper. Becoming a stripper, looking back on it, was my first step towards healing. Mm because I think it took a lot of courage to get on that stage <laughs> and take my clothes off in front of a room full of strange men. But mm-hmm. those men helped build me up. They told me I was pretty and I had to small talk with them and I had to get over some of my shyness. It sounds crazy that I was shy, you know, it's on the stage half naked, but somewhere in there, some psychologist could probably answer those questions. Um, yeah. So stripping actually really helped me grow. Uh, Had some very wild times, kind of Thelma Louise moments. And I was starting to slip down a path of needing alcohol or drugs to make it through my set. A set is about three songs. It was at that point where a gentleman walked into the club. He had come in a couple of times and I'd noticed him. He'd always tip me and leave. I was very attracted to him. This particular day he walked in, he tipped me. He said, what are you doing here? You look like the kind of girl i take home to meet my mom. And I stopped him. I said, you always tip me and you leave. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll stay if you hurry. (laughs) So I raced back in the back and I changed my clothes. I probably popped it a breath mint, spread on some new perfume and uh, raced out. And I met him at the bar and I just knew at that moment that I was going to marry this man. I needed him. I needed to be rescued. And he needed to be rescued too. And I don't have any shame over saying I needed to be rescued and that I was rescued by him. And we began a love affair and we got married. And we started having some difficulties in our marriage. I think that was me. And I take responsibility because I wasn't known, I wasn't authentic. I was on lockdown. I had so many emotions locked down that I had walls very high. And when we have those walls and when we aren't known, we're hiding. And that was leading to depression and resentment. Mm. And I don't know where that marriage would have gone because I, about then he was diagnosed with terminal cancer
1: Mm. and
2: so Mm. had to change paths. Yeah. Mm. Um, there's a little bit more to the story. I'm getting to the end of it. Uh, well, that's a story still unfolding. <laughs>
1: of course. Yeah. Take your time. We're honored to hear it. So when he was
2: diagnosed, the roles were reversed. I got to take care of him. Wow. Because this is a person who put me back in school, taught me how to dress, taught me how to mm-hmm. cook all these social things. And mm-hmm. he passed away and I was a widow at 34, mm-hmm. but I was alive. The pain of losing him just ripped off whatever I had been hiding. And I felt deep, deep pain, but I felt joy. And I think that's because I was alive for the first time because I had no choice but to feel. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was my story. I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, I can talk about grief and I can help people through grief. That's my story. Mm -hmm. Got remarried to my now husband, had two beautiful children and that's when the memories of the child sexual abuse came back.
1: Wow. Something
2: occurred in the bedroom and I my eyes popped open and I thought what is that? And I woke up very angry the next day with a memory that would never go away.
1: Mm.
2: And I became angry and depressed and I held on to that for 5 years. Went into counseling and didn't share about that memory until five years down the road, when I finally said, okay, there's something inside of me. I need to see if this is it. So that's my story in a little bit of a nutshell. Yeah, And then I became a loud advocate and now I haven't stopped.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, I would love to ask a question if you feel comfortable answering when you got that memory um, and then went to counseling and five years, never talked about it. Was it a memory that you knew like you knew what that was, or was it like more like real foggy? Not sure if this really happened. That's why I'm not going to talk about it. I knew it happened. You knew it happened, um, but you kind of maybe just kept it in the background and then you just wanted to focus on the, the anger, the, the depression, maybe some dissociation, those kinds of things. What you could see right here in your current life. Yeah. Right. I kept thinking, well, maybe I'm depressed because I miss my late husband and my
2: new marriage is not easy. You know, two toddlers and and I brought my grief and my childhood trauma in it. And then my husband is, he's a great guy, but he is not perfect. And Mm -hmm. so we, we struggled and I thought, well, that's why I'm unhappy. It's, it's not this memory. It's not this, that wasn't, Yeah,
1: I've dealt with that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So then when five years in, you bring that up, did that kind of, bring you into a new level of healing and therapy? Was it worth it? Yes.
2: Yeah. Yes. Because I, I firmly believe that I needed to be known. I needed to be known by my now husband and still loved despite Mm -hmm. my past. I firmly believe in being known and sharing our stories with someone who can be trusted with someone who deserves to hear it. It has not been easy on my husband. It's a tough road to be married to Mm -hmm. a survivor but he still loves me. And I think just being known and not hiding who I was has been incredibly
1: healing.
0: We're so glad you're here. Wanted to let you know the next Unleash Survivor cohort is starting September 6th. It'll meet on Tuesday evenings for eight weeks. We'll have weekly videos, journal prompts, and live online support group meetings led by Nicole, myself, and other trauma experts. We know that community is so important for healing to happen, and you won't find a better, safer, more affirming, inclusive, compassionate community of survivors than this one. Spots are limited. We hope you'll sign up now. Check it out, do it for you. I am onevoice.org. I am onevoice.org. And I know this part of
1: your story because I've been following your work a little bit. Um, just the whole idea of like having a relationship with this sibling. Um, the letter, the conversations that you've had, would you be willing to talk a little bit about that? I think that's gosh, for some survivors, it's like, I would never want that. And then for others, it's like, I would love for this person to admit it. Um, And then I never want a relationship. And then other ones, it's like, I have a relationship, but our family is destroyed by this, you know, the survivor I spoke about earlier, it did destroy the family because the parents sided with him yes. and didn't validate her pain. And that's very hard. You know, it's, it's so tricky. So um, yeah, I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit about how that has unfolded for you specifically.
2: Right. Unfortunately, I, I hear a lot of survivor stories where the parents side with the child who caused harm. And I think that's because we are not talking about it and they don't know what to do with it. And it's easier to say, okay, it didn't happen as Mm -hmm. opposed to diving in, because I do work with some parents with five waves who have had to dive in and do the work. And it is brutal. It does. It,
1: it's a whole family trauma. There's so Um, much expectation on the victim to be resilient, to get over it, to protect the person who caused the harm. Like why are we doing that? I don't know.
2: I still do it. I still do it. And, and I, and I received that pressure when I started telling my mom, I said, I need to come forward with this. I got a lot of okay. pressure from her. You know, she would yeah. say, what about him? What about his family? And I, I had some yeah. first words. I had some strong words for her. And I said, what okay. about me?
1: Yeah. I know I have
2: to tell this story. If I don't tell this story. Something inside of me is going to die.
1: And that's and- what I want every survivor to say, but gosh, that takes a lot of gut. A lot of inner strength and belief in yourself. I mean, for you to say that—that—that that, that takes a lot. And I think I was going to survivors- die.
2: There was mm-hmm. something in me had to come out,
1: even yeah. if it comes
2: out on paper. I, I firmly okay. believe, even if you're a survivor, write it down on paper. Get it yeah. out of you. Take it out on the paper. Start there,
1: and yeah. give it to the parent who's siding with the.
2: Oh, I don't do know about that, but at least get it out of you and onto the paper. Yeah. And that, that's yeah. my hope. You know, we'll go into five waves a little bit, but with five waves, okay. hoping to really create enough awareness that when a parent is confronted with this, mm-hmm. that they'll have a place to go and think, okay, this does happen. It happens mm-hmm. in lots of families. I'm not alone. I don't have to hide it. That's our mm-hmm. hope. We have a long mm-hmm. way to go. Um, the reason I do speak out is because I do have a unique situation with my sibling. And I mm. feel like it's my duty because of my unique situation.
1: Okay. Yeah.
2: Um, he did sexually abuse me and we've had conversations and, and he has told, he was, he was a pretty good kid, very logical child, very linear, right from wrong, has been very honest with me about why he did what he did. So he did not understand that he was harming me until later in life. He realized, oh, I might've hurt her. So when I was 21, I was visiting him and it was a family event. And he said, I have to apologize for what I did to you when you were little. I did not expect that. I wasn't ready for it. And I said to him, it's okay. I participated because I believe I participated. I believed I was complicit, but I was six (laughs) and I pushed it under the rug. I let it go. But somewhere in my back pocket I carried that apology. Knowing, okay, he knows something happened. He knows it was wrong. Mm-hmm. So many survivors don't have that. They they think mm-hmm. does this person remember? Does this person know that they did right. this to me? So I had that in my back pocket. Mm-hmm. Later in life, we just went along as things were, you know, normal. You know, a couple family gatherings, things were just typical. But when the depression hit, I became very angry and I basically put him and his whole family in a box and pushed them aside and hated all of them. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And that's when I get the pressure from my mom. She'd say, don't blame your marriage problems on what happened to you as a child. And I said, I'm doing the best I can, mom. I think that it impacted me. And she kept telling me, you have to forgive. And I said, I don't have to do anything. I will forgive when I'm ready. She started giving right. me books on forgiveness, and oh boy. <laughs> yeah, you, and you hear it from other people. You yeah. have to forgive, and I thought uh, I don't have to do anything. Yeah, right. No, mom. No, no. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened was, I started realizing that it was impacting my relationship with his family, and that it was now impacting the next generation. Mm. And I thought, huh, is that is that fair? It didn't happen overnight and it wasn't point A to point B. There was a lot of zigzagging where I really started was I forgave myself. I forgave that six-year-old little girl who i still talk about in the third person. I'm still connecting with her. I forgave her for not telling, for not knowing how to tell. And I forgave her for enjoying the attention. That's where my forgiveness started. Mm -hmm. And I was able to forgive her. And then I was able to forgive myself. And then I was ready to write him a letter of forgiveness. Wow. And then we were able to talk. I will not tell another survivor you have to forgive in order to heal.
1: Mm-hmm. I think
2: that forgiveness right. can look like very different things for other survivors. Yes.
1: Completely That's, agree. You
2: take what works for you inside my story and that works for you. Great. Take it like a grain of salt and, and what doesn't work. Don't use. I think it's very, very individual. So I'm not telling another survivor that you have to forgive. That's yeah. what I needed to do. And that's yeah. what worked well for me, but I yeah. still feel very protective of my mm-hmm. sibling. Still don't want to harm my sibling. So there's still that survivor. Instinct. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, part of then the forgiveness for you was a reconciliation because you're in relationship with this person who abused kind of. you. It's awkward. Okay. It's not, okay. we don't go to family
2: gatherings. We don't.
1: Okay, it, it, so it, there it is there are boundaries. Strange. There are boundaries.
2: it is it is a little bit strained.
1: You don't really see this person or talk no. to them. You just are honoring them as a human, yeah, who has admitted it. And, yes, and wants you to find healing. okay. yeah, yeah, They're, my I mean, my sibling's very supportive of the work that I'm doing. That's great, and which then, is I see why that compels you to want to be a voice because it's yeah. almost like, yeah, because I can. can. Yeah. Yeah. And that's similar to how I feel. My stepfather committed suicide after I told, so there wasn't any need to protect this person who's still alive. Um, I mean, he denied it till his death, but you know, it's not a point of worrying about that. So I get what you're saying in some ways we do feel freer to use our voice and almost compelled to use our life to do so when the other party is giving a permission in one way or another. Yeah. Yeah, good for you. Wow. Well, I think one part of what I'm learning from you and and your motivation to be an advocate is wanting to really educate parents on talking to kids. You know, uh, would you say a lot of like body safety discussions or just like understanding and awareness that this happens or, where do you find that like your passions are mostly in the preventative area? Like what what type of, of education are you wanting to instill? Right.
2: I, I really wanted to help survivors, but I realized mm-hmm. I'm not a coach, I'm not a therapist. And there's so many stories out there and I and I can't fix the past. Mm-hmm. And I kept hearing from parents and I kept hearing from people who have caused harm. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I need to aim for prevention. Yeah. And I do believe in body safety, but when we're talking about body safety, we have to include siblings, step-siblings, cousins, mm-hmm. older yeah. adolescents. And I also believe parents need to know this is happening at an mm-hmm. alarming rate. Parents, they, yeah. they're, they literally reach out to me and they will say, we did not know this was a thing. We had no idea. And we okay. took it for granted when we talked to our kids about body safety. We just assumed they wouldn't touch their sibling. But now with pornography and the lockdown, yeah, I think, I think parent, we we owe it to parents to let them know. I mean, I'm telling you that what these parents go through, they imagine being a
1: parent and loving both children
2: mm. and trying it's to get just, both
1: children help. Yeah. It's mean, an absolute nightmare. I mean, that would just be hell to enter your home. But it can be. I think it can be in most cases prevented.
2: There are some situations where I feel like we, I I don't want to say they're bad kids, but I think there are some situations where I'm not sure any education would have helped. Some of these stories are horrific. I just don't know if we could have stopped it, but we are trying to get to um, the, the parents in general who can sit down and educate their kids. Because yeah. it's so prevalent. They're saying one in five families. So what yeah. if we sit down and talk to our kids and talk to the parents and educate the parents and make that a, a lesser number?
1: Mm-hmm. This might not be your wheelhouse since I know you're focusing more on, yeah the education and prevention, but if you could answer for families like who find themselves in this situation, what steps would you advise them to take in the aftermath, how to handle this when it happens, if it happens in their family?
2: I can answer that because I, I, the five waves there were, the five waves consist of three moms and two survivors. One Mm -hmm. mom authored a site called siblingsexualtrauma.com. It's written with such care and such heart and I, the biggest thing is don't deny it. Don't shove it under the rug. It's not going to go away on its own. Both children need help. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I can't tell people that CPS is going to know what to do because even CPS is still learning. Even the police departments are still learning because they hear about sibling sexual abuse. Like, okay, they handle it as an adult situation where it's not always an adult situation. There's so much work to be done here. But bottom line, both kids need help and both parents, the whole it's a whole family trauma. Right. That's really good. Yeah. Start with siblingsexualtrauma.com. She's got yeah. lots of resources. She's got blog posts written from a parental perspective, written from there's another blog post they're written from a step parent perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think just talking to your kids about relationships and You know, fears even amongst their family members. You know, what when do you feel comfortable? Have you ever felt uncomfortable? Like, you know, are you are you okay with where your room is in the house? Like, just little things like that to get to know your child. And I think it's those kinds of questions that bring about the sticky situations, the murky things that maybe we don't know about, right? Yeah. And to get to the bottom of it, otherwise we end up forty five years old telling for the first time yeah yeah. and
2: and you know, I think the Mama Bear effect talks about really, you know, parenting in general. We just have to have that open door policy. Yeah, Our kids absolutely. need to be able to come to us. Mm-hmm. Um, my kids have been educated to the point where their eyeballs roll back and then, you know, I come near them with a book and they run away from me. but <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. but that's right.
2: and I'm sure your kids are really educated too. Mm-hmm. I just don't know how we get parents to really take yeah. this seriously because the damage, I believe, we can mitigate the damage.
1: I agree. Yeah, because like you've said, most of the sibling sexual abuse cases end up in destruction of families. It really does. Yeah. And if yeah. we can look at it before things like that happen or and just think like none of us are immune. Right. 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 And start there. I think that's really important. Um I'm wondering what's your relationship now with your parents and your parents with your brother. My father is deceased. He
2: died never knowing about the abuse. Wow. Mm-hmm. My mom is on her own journey. Once I did write the forgiveness letter to my brother, she realized, oh, now I have to go through my own process. She's still processing it. Hi. She did She did come to the TEDx. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it was big. But she's still processing where her role is. She, she loves her children and she loves all of her children. Yeah. Um, I think she, on some level is probably a little disappointed knowing, I mean, and now I'm a parent. And when I, when I pass, I want to know that my children are are in communication and close to one another.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: We don't really have that. She has to go through her own grief process and grief journey process. Yeah. As far as, you know, my other sibling, (laughs) that's hard too, as a survivor, you out one sibling then the other sibling gets pulled into it as well thinking oh it wasn't me I don't want any part of this so it gets it's hard it's hard hard on that
1: yeah 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 did you ever go through like any like family systems therapy or everybody coming in or has it been more of just your personal journey and then giving space for your mom to have her journey your brother to have his journey, the other sibling, the other. It's all, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was you so think much that older that's... when I came out. <laughs> True, yeah. yeah. Do you think that's been helpful? And like, have you talked about your journeys, or do you just kind of like, is it like, let's just be a family but not really talk about this stuff?
2: I think it's let's just be a family but not yeah. really talk about this stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, but I'm getting louder and and more out there, so mm-hmm. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I
2: just know that I I was I know that I was called to do this and I have to do it. It's not yeah. what I would have chosen to talk about, believe me.
1: Of course, yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Someone has we're, to do it. We're grateful that you're doing it. I think we need to keep raising up more voices, and by your voice being so strong and brave, and you're a really good communicator. I think it's gonna just continue to raise up more and more,
0: and hopefully
1: hope. one day this. Silent epidemic won't be so silent, and then our voices will prevent it from happening to our kids' kids and all of that. I guess, um, and kind of wrapping up, Jane, would you be willing to say something to some of the sexual abuse survivors that are survivors of sibling sexual abuse? Um, what would you have to say to them? A lot of them are still very silent, very stuck in the shame and feeling, you know, is my story. Um, part of the Me Too movement, you know what I mean? Like, Mm. can my story be included because this feels a little different and, you know, you've walked through that. And what would you have to say to them kind of in closing today?
2: That's a beautiful question, Nicole. Um, Yeah, the Me Too movement, I feel like it's left, it might, you might feel like you are left out of it as well. I feel like the Me Too movement was a great step forward, but I feel like, survivors of incest and sibling sexual abuse, we all still need our own movement, our own hashtag. And I was hoping to create something through my TEDx, but TEDx would not let me put the hashtag in there. We started Mm -hmm. trying to create a siblings to hashtag. but So many survivors will reach out to me and they'll say, thank you for your TEDx talk, but I'm not coming forward. It would break my mother's heart if Mm -hmm. she knew she couldn't protect me. Yeah. So to those survivors, I just want to say, I hear you. You are not alone. You don't have to be as loud as myself, but I do hope that you can write your story down and get it out of your system. I hope that you can share your story one day, even if it's anonymously, I believe in the power of that. I hope that you find community and it's really not your shame to carry. And I understand the the desire to protect the family and the person who caused harm. I do. And I will not judge you for not coming forward, Mm -hmm. but we will create awareness.
1: Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. We all need our stories validated. And I think that that really helps. So thank you so much, Jane. Thank you just for your positivity your your courage to share and, and just your willingness to devote so much of your, heart, life, passion, um, and vulnerability to this message. It's really, really important. Well, so, thank yeah. you to we'll you, be you. Thank you
2: both for using this platform to get the word out and, and right back at you. We, we, I believe in community. I believe we can't do yeah. this alone. Mm-hmm. I believe in collaboration. So
1: absolutely you. 100%. So where can people, um, find more information about what you're doing? How can they support you? Um, as you continue to raise your voice? Sure. The siblingsexualtrauma.com
2: website, there's lots of information, lots of resources there. It's a huge website. And okay. um, then fivewaves.org is the five, the three women, uh, the three moms, and the two survivors. And then my personal website is complicatedcourage.com. I'm on Instagram, I'm on TikTok. You Google Jane Epstein Complicated Courage, you will by me. And my TEDx talk is called giving sibling sexual abuse a voice.
1: Okay, great. Well, I hope everyone will go check that out. And again, we thank you so much for your time, Jane. Thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. We'll be cheering for you. You too. I'm cheering you on as well. (laughs) All right. Goodbye.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.